From Chagdagumpa Riggs and Lane, this is Listen, Contemplate, Meditate, a podcast featuring a range of teachings from the Buddhist tradition presented by Lamas of Chagdagumpa Foundation. Our website is chagdagumpa.org. So, there's so many different angles to approach this. You know, I, uh, the, from the point of view of the, the Buddhist teachings, the teachings on dying and death come from the teachings on impermanence, which is a fundamental truth in Buddhism. The, we, everything is changing microsecond by microsecond, and the death of our physical body is just one big drama of change. Um, it's not one we should be careless about, but it's, if we've looked at things uh, truthfully, honestly, we know that we've died so many times, uh, not in just in other lifetimes, but moment to moment, in this lifetime, the philosopher Schopenhauer said every day is a little life. Actually, every minute or fraction of a minute, everything has changed. And uh, if we looked into any minute, it would be a microcosm of everything. So the, the teachings organize this trajectory of change as bardas, as intermediate states. We're always between something, one moment and the next. But the, there's a traditional organization of six bardas. And we are now gathered in the uh, bardo of the, of the birthplace that begins at the moment of conception, uh, in some teachings, or the moment we leave our mother's body in other teachings, and continues until we meet the cause of death. And in this bardo, this in-between state, um, we as human beings have an opportunity that's unparalleled in any other uh, state of existence. We have choice, we have uh, the ability to transcend the the uh, vectors of ordinary movement, of ordinary transition, to really make choices that lead to transcendent wisdom, to a state of deathlessness. And so at the very moment one uh, receives teachings on preparation for death, then you understand that really all of that is embodied in the teachings on how to live your life fully. If we don't really uh, appreciate this opportunity, then we are like uh, someone who went to an island where there were jewels and brought no, none of them back, or we've gone to a very fine restaurant and ate nothing, or <laughs> we've met wonderful people, but uh, we were distracted, and uh, they've passed away. Uh, and we don't know them. So the the teachings on on death actually bring in focus the teachings on life. Uh, 
the deepest, most meaningful uh, activity of this life is really to find one's spiritual refuge, to find a refuge that's infallible, that leads to liberation from the cycles of life and death. Uh, whether it's in the Buddhist tradition or whether it's in a, a different tradition, the, the Buddhist commitment is to respect all traditions that are based on morality and based on, on benefit. And so those who have a spiritual refuge, whether it's a Buddhist refuge or a Christian refuge or a different kind of refuge, then when they die, then they have a focus, they have a direction for their mind that uh, is liberating. Then, in terms of the, the Buddhist path itself, there's so many categories. Uh, first, it's sort of defeating. Uh, to All of these categories are presented to you as something to memorize. And uh, I was once teaching on the, uh, <laughs> on the four reflections that change the mind. This is the very beginning of my teaching career. I was down in Los Angeles. And so I went through one, two, three, and then I couldn't remember the fourth one. <laughs> and I was sitting there, I was really like totally, uh, somebody said suffering. <laughs> and uh, the truth of suffering was really <laughs> very apparent to me in that moment. And so I came home to Chaturimpache and I confessed. I thought, this is it, I will never teach again. And he said, uh, don't number things. <laughs> but uh, in terms of, of all of the, the categories, one of the, the uh, most useful is to understand that we could divide the whole path of Dharma into the path of purification and the path of accumulation of merit and wisdom. What we have to purify is our own ne negative emotions our, and the suffering of the emotions that arises from our clinging either to pain or pleasure. Uh, the, the purification of that, the purification of the karmic factors that we've generated because of our confusion and delusion and the, uh, the actions based on confusion and delusion. The, then the, the confusion that we have in terms of the nature of reality. We really, uh, because of our, our habit that's carried from, in the Buddhist understanding, from past lifetimes through this lifetime, then we have a divided view of reality based on attachment and aversion and the, the confusion about the very nature of reality, the ignorance about that nature. 
And so then the, the purification of all of that is a big project. The, um, we first need to purify the, the most negative of our emotions, which are anger. If we have anger and hatred toward others, then that uh, pollution in the mind at the time of death if becomes a, a hellish projection. Uh, when we see on this earth people who are dying by violence and uh, people who are by killing others and then die, then we really can only have compassion for them because that projection becomes inescapable. Uh, the stability of this body disintegrates and they live in that projection of mind. And so then in our um, own life, we need to survey and see where we have really deep anger and res resentment, the limits of our own compassion, the, uh, the feeling that, uh, okay, it's okay, if it's really evil beings suffer, or the uh, limits of our love, the feeling that uh, some beings really do not deserve happiness. Uh, we have no wish for their happiness, no wish that, uh, no rejoicing in any happiness that they may have. And all of us have uh, places in our own life where we really have uh, obstacles, you know, people who we see have inflicted harm on us or usually almost more deeply harm on those that we care about. Many people can process uh, pain and, and, and uh, harm that's inflicted on them. But if you inflict it on my child or if you inflict it on my friends, then the limit is uh, we, we wish for punishment. We have um, compassion for those who are victimized and no compassion for the perpetrator. And so the I attended a conference once in India, and it was uh, a conference that was a, a kind of peace initiative that was organized by women, but it had people from many different countries. And actually, the most impressive speaker there was a Palestinian guy. And he was a, a young man who had many reasons to hate. He'd seen the Israeli army uh, tear down his house. His brother had been killed. He had been in jail. I mean, the depth of injustice was really deep. And he said something I'll never forget. He said, I had to decide that I would find peace because if I didn't make that choice, peace was not coming. 
And so then that, uh, that kind of decision, which we can make as a human being with choices, with these capabilities, with a spiritual reference, um, this, is our, this is our gift as human beings. And so the, we are in a realm called the desire realm, which means that we feel not only uh, attachment and desire, but we feel the opposite. We have this dividedness in the way we perceive things. We have attachment and aversion constantly over big things uh, like events and over small things like the, our choice of food. The, uh, to work with that, then we have the the possibility of really fearing our own anger. If we have the seeds of anger within our mind stream, and then we suddenly uh, lose control of our body, and we die, and we have no protection from the projections of those seeds of anger, that's a source of fear. That's a, uh, most religions really um, stress that one, that you really cannot have anger and hatred because the harm it brings to you yourself uh, is, is incalculable at this point. Or we can recognize the, the, the anger that we have an antidote it. The antidote for anger is a deep-seated wish that beings be happy, that uh, the, the loving kindness that we generate toward all beings, that may they be happy. We know that no true happiness arises from anything except virtue. Uh, someone who has a perverted mind and takes pleasure in non-virtue and the pain of others. There's no deep-seated happiness in that. Um, but wherever we see someone who has some moment of happiness, we rejoice in it. We wish that it expand, that they not lose it. And if we cultivate that, then there's a kind of joyfulness. We start to look at uh, others, not just as suffering beings, but as beings who have potential for happiness. Um, and wherever we see it, we make a prayer to expand it. In Brazil, it's uh, um, a lot of beggars on the street at intersections. Actually, yesterday in Reading, you know, was it yesterday? Was I here yesterday? No. <laughs> the day before. I came yesterday? No, the day before? Today is Sunday. Yesterday was Saturday. And I came on Friday night. Right, okay. Um, I was driving at that uh, intersection from, from the uh, 44 to Hilltop. And there is a guy with this, you know, the usual sign, homeless, will work for 
for, uh, for money or for food. And so then um, I had my $5 ready. And there was just no stopping in this. It's like you, we have all of these, these moments where we'd want to help, and then we can't. And we're not sure it's going to be helpful anyway. Uh, the, uh, each of us has to come to our own decision about the, that kind of offering. The, when, I give, when I give to a beggar, I always give with a prayer. Okay, I know that this $5 or this quarter or this one real in Brazil, this is not very much and it's not very much happiness, but whatever it is, uh, may you not lose it. And may we have connection in the future when there's greater benefit. And so that uh, is a kind of goody-goody um, <laughs> attitude. <laughs> but the, uh, it makes you in tune. You tune in to the need that you see around you. I was in Chile one time, and I was buying things. I was shopping. It's sort of like, you know on a momentum of shopping. And uh, there is this guy who came with a cane, like walking along, really looking decrepit. And uh, so I gave him some money with a prayer. <laughs> then I went into the shoe shop, and the guy in the shoe shop said, why did you give that guy money? You know who he is? He owns about three blocks of Santiago. <laughs> I went outside and I said, listen, you. <laughs> what are you doing? What do you think you're doing? You know, what kind of karma are you making? You know, stealing. Um, what kind of poverty is this? Then we looked, and it was like the moment of truth. It was eye to eye. And we both started laughing. And that was the gift. He didn't give me my money back, though. <laughs> So this antidoting uh, by compassion or antidoting by, by loving kindness or antidoting by joy is one way to, to transform one's own aversion to the situation. And we can't pick up the newspaper now without having just almost nauseous aversion to what's happening in the world. We're bombarded, we're, we're pervaded by the news of suffering everywhere. Uh, if we let it become our whole context, uh, and uh, we have endless politically oriented opinions about it, and you know, uh, with me, military ideas, then, then uh, we lose our sense of inner peace. The, we, we have no peace to offer. The, the Buddha uh, said the, that unless we have inner peace, then there's no peace. So the third way 
to deal with the, the arisings in our mind is simply to notice them, to look, to see how they arise, how they dissolve. And that kind of meditative training, which is based on many, many different steps, Lama Pema is eminently uh, qualified to, to teach this. Then the calming of the mind, the noticing of what arises, the, uh, the boundaries of inner and outer dissolving, and so that when uh, things arise, and present themselves to you, you're able to, to reestablish an, an equilibrium, a kind of equanimity, just seeing the uh, appearance, the dissolution. That kind of uh, power of meditation in the moment of death is really what we all strive for, because none of us uh, really has the control over the circumstances of death. And we see this again and again, even in the, in the stories of great masters. Uh, for example, Milarepa, let me die in the wilderness where there's no one to mourn the corpse. You know, keep it simple. <laughs> How does he die? He dies because uh, someone is jealous of him, poisons him. Uh, there's a huge uh, assembly of people, all in complete chaos. Uh, the person who's poisoned him is asking for absolution. Uh, it's just a complete uh, uh, chaos. And it doesn't stop after he dies. Uh, the, uh, his great disciple, Rechungpa, isn't there. And he sort of speed walking to join the, the assembly who's, who's going to cremate the corpse. And uh, he gets there and, and he becomes angry at the other disciples. Milarepa's way, son, don't be like this. You know, still, he has to pay attention even after death. Then the Dakinis are there. They say, oh, you people, you didn't care about him any more than you would care about a worm. You're not getting the relics. And they take everything, and then all the disciples are really, like, desolate. And then Milarepa again intervenes and says, no, no, look again, and tells them where they are. This kind of thing. Uh, the, uh, and he was a meditation master. The, uh, so then we who have even less control over this karmic circumstances that will arise, we don't know that we visualize maybe that we want to die peacefully, surrounded by loving friends who are praying for us, candles, uh, the right kind of music. <laughs> no New Age Buddhist chants, please. <laughs> um, the right prayers, you know. Um, it may not happen that way. 
There's a story of a very great Rinpoche who died in a car accident. And in the next moment, he appeared before his guru. And he said, what happened? His guru looked at him and he said, you died. And then he said, oh, 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 okay. Like he got it. Like the Tibetans think that's a very bad story, actually. Because he lost control of his, he, he lost awareness as the car was rolling down the mountain. I think that's a great story because he knew what to do next. You know, go to his guru. What happened? You died. Then he reincarnated. The Chaju Rinpoche. Uh, he was teaching Poa. He was teaching th like 300 people. They all gathered. Uh, the, and at the beginning he said, we have two good days together. And then in the transcript there's this back and forth. He said, oh, they say we have three. And so then that was a Friday. And he was in the process of having a massive heart attack. It had started before. And uh, his main attendant, Lama Shab, knew because she's a trained nurse. And so she had the medevac, everything was like ready to go to take Rinpoche to his cardiologist. And uh, he was a very smooth guy in Sampala. Oh, my dear Rinpoche, <laughs> what did you eat for breakfast this morning? Pancakes. And Rinpoche, what did you have in that? Pancake? Butter. Oh, <laughs> You know, he was like, just like, Rinpoche loved him. And so then, um, if he'd have been a really raffle cardiologist, Rinpoche probably wouldn't have wanted to, agreed to go, but they were packing his things on, on Saturday night. And then, uh, sure enough, after the two days of his teachings, then he died. And it was, it was still, it was really chaotic. Uh, not so much in the room, but uh, with 300 people. And normally, uh, if a llama dies, and also if you die, uh, or if someone you know that you're taking care of dies, it's good not to talk about it right away. Like, figure out, uh, what prayers you want to do before you call, don't call 911. 911 will come with their protocol. Uh, wait, do your prayers, then uh, in that space when everything is accomplished, then call. So we didn't do that. Uh, everybody knew. <coughs> and uh, in Brazil, you have to cremate a body within 48, uh, 24 hours. And so then, then began a big saga of um, the newspapers saying, is he dead or is he not dead? You know, like, what is going on here? And all the llamas are sort of like um, gathering around, you know, trying to protect the situation. And... Uh, did he medevac away or he died there? No, no, he never went to the medevac. He never went, okay. It was just waiting, but he died before he did that. Oh, I see. Okay. Right there. Yeah, he died right there. 
So then he remained in a state of tukdam and meditation for five and a half days, at which point we were all on the verge of being arrested for harboring a body. So then uh, the lamas came in and they opened their book to do a prayer, a request, please now break your meditation. And uh, before they opened the book, then the meditation was, was ended. It was like he was completely aware. That kind of uh, maintaining of meditation across the threshold of death, that is for us like an ideal death. And there have been Westerners who did that. They're not so well known. That there are Westerners who've uh, been able to maintain that state of tukdam uh, and for some time after the last breath. And it's like being completely aware and that expanse of meditation is really inspiring to everyone who uh, encounters it. For Rinpoche, it was so powerful. Is that for the rest of us who would enter his presence directly, it was like un states of meditation that I'd never experienced before happened then. And since then, I didn't experience them again. <laughs> so that's a kind of ideal death. That is something we could achieve if we have stability of mind. Uh, what defeats stability of mind is attachment to this body, to these relationships, to this environment. Uh, we forget that uh, it's all impermanent. In the microsecond, the, between one word and another word, everything in this room has changed. You've had different thoughts, the, the cellular constituents of your body have changed, the outer environment has changed, the air in the room has changed, the sound has changed. There's nothing the same. We're all sharing a kind of dream here. And uh, we have a kind of common ground in our sharing, but for none of us is it exactly the same. And we forgot that, we forgot that, that this is an ongoing dream, that this is an ongoing illusion, that this is, uh, uh, these sounds are like echoes. And so we try to stabilize, and that's our big suffering. Our suffering at death and our suffering in life. We uh, live in a kind of denial of impermanence. And so the drama, of dying um, seems fraught with fear. So the birthplace bardo is, is followed by the bardo of the moment of death, the bardo of dying. And this is when we actually meet the cause of our death. Uh, it can last a long time if we have a slowly evolving terminal illness. 
or it can be very quick if we die by an accident or by violence. The um, the suffering that we experience is the the general pain of our body losing its cohesion, the elements of our body disintegrating and losing losing force. Um, but a deeper pain is the kind of existential pain of knowing that now whatever uh, we've held to is, is dispersing, is scattering that, that sorrow that we feel. The, the, uh, many people who have great peace of mind can have can bear the physical pain uh, if they have a purpose for that physical pain or if they have a transcendent uh, sense of refuge and direction for their mind, recognizing that a single headache in this human body is like a, it purifies the karma of hundreds of years in a different realm of existence. If you understand the purification, that's not to deny the pain, but to find the peace within the pain. Or even deeper than that, to have compassion, to think, okay, by my experiencing this pain, may others not have to experience it. That compassion is a deeper purification still The, um, it's useful to start early in preparation for the moment of dying. Why? First of all, there's such uncertainty about when, how, where we will die. And if we have a lot of unfinished business, then we'll have a lot of regret. I've told this story before, but uh, I fly into Montevideo, Uruguay, which is a big kind of open place, very modern airport, about 10 flights a day at most. You know, weather is usually sunny in Montevideo. You know, no thought that this is going to be a problematical thought of flight. And so I was flying into Montevideo, and it was the most hellacious storm I've ever encountered in the air. And we were going around and it, for 20 minutes, and it would hit these air pockets, go, pah! And then you'd go up again, it couldn't land, pah! And there's another elderly woman on the other side, and there's one young man, both hanging on to him, our savior, <laughs> gripping this, this guy. But everybody was just white with fear. And I'm going, damn it, damn it. And, you know, I didn't label things. I didn't put my papers in order. You know, I was going through all of the unfinished things. And I really, like, just cursing myself. <laughs> then I caught that. I caught that. I thought... You might really die here. This is a bad state of mind, and you're not going to be able to do anything about that anyway. <laughs> so then I was going on about that, <laughs> you know, and wasting more time. And then I thought, Amitabha. 
<laughs> I really did start uh, thinking about Buddha. And, um, but it was, you know, it was lucky the plane didn't drop out of the air. Because if, if, when you're in that anger, self-anger, uh, that is, that's a uh, destructive force. That was one of the most shocking things that Chadra Rinpoche ever said to me, that anger itself toward others, yeah, that's very bad uh, and destructive. This anger is anger, and anger toward oneself, that's still anger. And he said, that can be a hellish projection for you. And so then at the, at the end of our life, uh, we don't want to die in, 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 in anger. We really need to be able to reconcile our mind to the loss of our body, speech, and uh, ordinary context very fast. And so for that reason, in our, in our life now, it's very useful to cultivate a sense of refuge in your daily activity. If you're a Buddhist, to, to really visualize Buddha or Amitabha Buddha or your teacher inseparable of Buddha, uh, many times as you, as you move through daily activities, so it becomes a reflex. If you see something happen, you think of Buddha. You're not like discussing it with yourself as the plane is dropping. The, uh, if it's Christ, then it's Christ. And then that would give you a bridge, uh, a transition that's positive from this body into the next state. There are many practical things to do. Uh, in California, they make it easy to do them with medical directives and wills and, uh, and you know, the, the conversation uh, with your loved ones. This is not so unusual here. Uh, in Brazil, there's not the, uh, the uh, tradition of wills. There's assumption of that the government has already organized everything that it's all legally bound. And so then on every Sunday I have interviews in the morning and there's always a, a story of you know, like inheritance gone wrong. <laughs> Brothers and sisters uh, really in conflict over the legacy. Um, so there's something wrong with the loss, but I don't go there. That, then Medical directives, uh, this is not usual in Brazil either. Here, there are standard medical directives that, uh, that you can work through. And to work through them is really you envisioning your own dying process. And this is like a rehearsal of death. Uh, if you serve someone else who's dying, and if you uh, go through the process of envisioning your own death, imagining yourself unable to speak, uh, unable to move, unable to make your wishes known, uh, then you'll have uh, 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 a better sense uh, through 
the envisioning as well as a piece of paper to back up your wishes. And so then it's a matter of, of also like gathering all of this and putting it in a, in a place that people can find. Yeah, so that you are not uh, looking from a Bardo state and people are going through your desk. And like, where is the will? Where is the, uh, the directive? And you've had a conversation with your doctors. How many of you have done that? Hmm. Prema and John, how many times have you heard these teachings? <laughs> <laughs> Procrastinators. That's it, that, but procrastination, it's, it's, uh, is, is one of our worst enemies in, in preparing for our dying process. Uh, because we think it's, it's one of the, in the, the Hindu Vedas, they ask a sage, you know, what is the most amazing thing? And the sage says, seeing that beings die all around them, people don't think that they will die. That's amazing. <laughs> There's very few people who have ever gone over Niagara Falls and survived. But there was one guy who did. His name was Lynch. He was an Irishman in about 1906. The next year, the one year after going over Niagara Falls with a few bruises, he was walking along the street. He slipped on an orange peel, not even a banana peel, <laughs> not even a cartoon banana peel, and he died of the injuries. I mean, it's that kind of uncertainty that we, we have. So many causes for death and so hard to sustain life. And most of us have seen sudden death. I've seen three pedestrians killed. Um, it's, uh, it's shocking, but it's not surprising. So the medical directive and discussing it with your doctor and your family. Um, my Sangha family is very sick of hearing me discuss these things. You know, morning, noon, night over breakfast. Um, and my doctor looked at me and she said, because I was saying that if I have dementia, I don't want to be fed, not just by tubes, but by spoon. I want to die a natural death. If I don't recognize what the food is and the water is, and don't pick it up myself, don't give it to me. So I'm explaining to her this, and she's completely averse to it. And she says, well, my auntie was so mean that everybody hated her. <laughs> but when she got dementia, she was much nicer. <laughs> and we liked her much better. I'm going, this is not our conversation. <laughs> I need to find another doctor here. You're not going to back me up here. <laughs> so... Um, directives, a will, letters of goodbye, those are heartbreaking uh, to your children particularly, to having, like, someone like Susan has a, a huge <coughs> legacy of wisdom for her grandchildren. If she were to make a video, they would treasure this. 
uh, or to write individual letters uh, expressing gratitude. The And then a will. Uh, when you write a will, then you're, you're, it's an act of generosity. It's a little bit controlling as well. But uh, to, to, to make the will, to really like offer and then let it go. I used to write a new will every time I was going to go on an airplane. And I make Chajan Rinpoche and a couple of Sangha members sign it. Finally, he said, I don't care about this. You care. And he made me stop doing it. <laughs> but uh, you have a sense that what you've accumulated will be used as you wish to use it. And even if you don't have uh, money to offer, uh, there are things like for, for Dharma practitioners that you are sacred to you, that are meaningful once they're offered specifically. So, um, there's a young lama in Boulder, Colorado named Anyan Rinpoche, and he suggests putting all of this in a box and then also the practices that you would like to have done and um, you know uh, whatever else you want to leave as instructions and then label the box and so the um, in the bardo of dying our mission is really to to purify, to continue that purification. Uh, whatever we have regret, it's uh, not the time maybe to say, honey, you know, about 10 years ago I had an affair and I always felt a little guilty about it. Uh, I really want you to forgive me. Uh, this is maybe not the moment to do this. This is really the moment to uh, to invoke a wisdom being and acknowledge whatever you've done and then receive, uh, make a commitment that in your future lifetimes you want to repeat that. And then have the confidence and the faith that whatever non-virtue we've done can be purified. That's huge. And to envision the purification by light and blessing. I think this is really important to teach children, because children are really sensitive uh, to their own wrongdoing, and they identify themselves as bad when they do wrong. And so then having the, um, having the four powers of purification teaching them that they can purify and that they just need that commitment to themselves not to repeat and to envision the blessing and, and purification flowing in them. 
And then the accumulation of mat, you know, like the offering of your possessions at the time of dying, that accumulates mat. Um, the dedication of your practice uh, accumulates mat. The the cultivation of your connection with enlightened beings, envisioning them above your head, uh, really offering your prayers. Uh, this is the accumulation of wisdom. And when you die, to, to have had that steadiness of meditation, that steadiness of connection to the source of your refuge. Um, this will serve you well crossing the threshold of death. This podcast is supported by the generosity and kindness of Chagdagumpa members and donors. If you're interested in becoming a member, making a donation, or if you want to learn more about Chagdagumpa, feel free to go to chagdagumpa.org.